Hi everyone, welcome back to Say You Want to Be a Vet, the podcast series where we bring you honest and open discussions about life as a veterinary student and share the inspiring and motivating experiences of vets from all across the industry, from their vet school journey and beyond. Before we get started, make sure to subscribe to our podcast. You can follow us on social media at Say You Want to Be a Vet, where we will be sharing behind the scenes clips, doing live Q&As and so much more. Don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel with the same name, where we upload regular videos such as CV and personal statement writing tutorials, interview skills, and so much more that will help you build a strong application to that school. Hi everyone, and welcome back to the Say You Want to Be a Vet podcast. And today we'll be talking all about work experience, in particular ophthalmology, with our special guest, who will introduce himself now. Hi everyone, my name's Matthew. I'm a first year vet med student at the Royal Veterinary College. And yeah, like Verity said, I have a special interest in veterinary ophthalmology. Perfect. So how are you enjoying the RVC so far? How are you enjoying first year? Um, It's definitely... It was quite a tricky process to adjust from going from A-levels to being at university at the very beginning, but there's a lot of support available at the RBC to help you with your note-taking and to help you with your sort of uni living. So I found that really helpful. And once I got over that hurdle of adjusting, I've, uh, I've been really enjoying it, thank you. Yeah, it's been really, really fun. It's certainly a lot of work, but I don't know what else I expected. Yeah, I completely agree. The The first sort of like whole term really at uni is quite tough like there's a lot going on in that first term like you're trying to make friends you're trying to settle into where you're living you're living away from home for the first time you know you're doing all your cooking and you're cleaning and trying to figure out a whole new way to learn and you know it's quite intense and it is really fun and it's great um but it is quite a lot and I think it's often quite easy to sort of overlook how big of a thing it is to move away to uni and stuff um but it's great to hear that you're enjoying it. And like you say, there's so much support available at RVC and, you know, all of the unis in general, really just give you loads of support if you need it. So make use of everything that's available to you and you definitely do settle in eventually. And I promise you as well, everybody else is finding it exactly the same. Like everybody else is thinking, oh, wow, this is a lot of work and sort of, I think it's quite a surprise, but you're not alone in that. So don't worry. So, Matthew, you said you have an interest in ophthalmology. For a lot of people listening, they probably might be thinking, uh, what on earth is ophthalmology? So what actually is it and where has this interest come from? Yeah, sure. So ophthalmology essentially describes anything and everything relating to the eyes and your, your ability to see things. And to be honest, it's a great question as to why I find ophthalmology so interesting. I don't, I don't really know myself, but... I found that from my work experience placements back before anything specialist, I was really drawn to all the ophthalmology cases and I just found everything really fascinating. You know, like the fact that this little sort of ball of jelly in your head can make you see things, I find just absolutely remarkable. And so, unfortunately, my it was it's, it's a bit of a, a sad story how my interest in ophthalmology developed, but it's, it's an interesting one. I um, was out walking my dog one day in the pouring rain and I had a big raincoat on and I had these toggles around the, the hood for my raincoat. And then, you know, you can sort of pull them, tighten them. And when I pulled them out in front of me, like really unfortunately, one of them sort of slips off my fingers and pinged me in the eye. And so that gave me a condition called a traumatic hyphema, which is when the blunt force trauma to the front of my eye from the little plastic toggle on my raincoat ultimately 
you know, caused a lot of the blood vessels in the front part of my eye to rupture. And so that caused only a tiny little bit of blood to filter into the space in between my cornea and my lens, which is sort of two different structures in the eye. And it made that sort of space fill with a little bit of blood. And so in that moment, I couldn't see anything because although the amount of blood in my eye was very little, I couldn't I couldn't see that much at all. And that's when I decided to go to the to the hospital. And to cut a long story short, I was in the eye hospital for a long time and I was exposed to all of this sort of ophthalmology around me. And because very luckily I knew that I'd get my vision back very quickly and I knew that my case wasn't too, you know, too severe, I was able to ask all the doctors loads of questions and look around at all the different sort of techniques that they're using to understand where, you know, sort of eye medicine is and what, what they're trying to achieve. And that, that really cemented my interest in ophthalmology, I'd say, after sort of just being generally interested beforehand. And then ever since that, that you know, event, you could say, I then managed to get myself a work experience placement at a veterinary ophthalmology referral hospital just for a week. And it was at that placement that I really understood how important uh, ophthalmology is as a specialty in veterinary medicine and how just sort of complex and intricate, but also fascinating all of the things they can do are. And the, the main thing that I find great about ophthalmology that you might not necessarily see in other specialties in veterinary medicine is the fact that you can make a change to the animal's quality of life so quickly by restoring their ability to see. Because although the eyes are very complicated and, you know, I don't understand much about them at all, but a lot of the problems that you see are preventable. And a lot of the problems you see with eye problems are, you know, treatable in quite a short period of time. And obviously, you know, the ability to see, the ability to express natural behaviour is really important to, you know, our companion animals and to any animal. And so the fact that you're able to restore that so quickly and therefore improve the animal's quality of life is something that I found really powerful. Wow. Yeah, I guess it's the case of sort of every cloud has a silver lining with your like traumatic incident. <laughs> but it's really cool that you got to sort of see the human side of it as well as the veterinary side of it, because obviously, you know, as as vets, we are sort of limited. Like we, we can't we don't know what the animal can see, um, obviously. Um, so and we sort of don't have that communication. So I think it's really interesting the way we sort of diagnose eye problems and like vision problems. And I've just started learning about the eye um, about two weeks ago. So I agree, it's very complicated and really impressive. Honestly, we had a dissection the other week and I just remember looking at the eye and I was like, how does this do that? I was like, how is that in my head? And how is that working? And how does it work really well, like most of the time? So yeah. it's very impressive and it is really, really interesting. And I'd never really thought about it before. So you said you went on a placement at a specialist ophthalmologist. How did you find that placement? Like, how did you get it? I've never done any specialist placements, and they do sort of seem quite intimidating. So just like asking about your experience there. Yeah, no, I completely understand as to why it can be quite intimidating. And the one thing that I want to hit home right before I start talking is the fact that when you're on work experience, or placement for vets, you're not there to try and understand anything and everything that's going on with all the cases that you're seeing. The main thing you're trying to understand is that, you know, the, the layers to the veterinary profession, for example, and the fact that there's communications between the first opinion practice and the referral practice. And also just understanding that vets have a much wider role than what most people might see, which is in first opinion practice, for example. 
And so how I found the placement was, so through some of my small animal sort of first opinion placements, I was able to build a very strong rapport with a lot of the vets working there. And I feel that's just through showing enthusiasm, just sort of being interested in what's going on and asking the right questions at the right time and that sort of thing. And they were able to suggest to me, you know, just through chatting about my interests in veterinary medicine, um, they suggested to me that there's a, a specialist hospital where I'm from who might, you know, be willing to take you. And so I researched that specialist hospital a little bit. I sort of tried to understand their sort of placement policy. And I wrote them a, a nice email with a, you know, with a cover letter and that sort of thing and offered a phone call uh, to see if, you know, by chance they might let me in for a week. And, you know, I was very fortunate to say that they did. I think that just goes to show how important it is that on work experience you're being enthusiastic and getting stuck in and doing whatever it is that you can and I think a lot of the time it's easy to go on work experience and think you know especially as an applying student because you know you're probably 15 16 you're not really allowed to do anything like I think the only things that I did on my placement was like mop the floors I was lucky enough to like wash some scissors at one point like what you can do is really limited but you can get so much out of work experience. And like Matthew said, you can even then go on to secure other work experience placements just by showing that you're really keen and showing that you're really interested in, in what there is for you to learn. Because just because you can't necessarily get as hands on as what we would all like, and it makes sense, you know, you can't turn up and do surgery on a day one as a 16 year old work experience student um but like you there's still so much to learn there and it's just by chatting to people and chatting to everybody within the team like everybody within the team has something that they can teach you um and we had some marketing lectures actually at uni the other week and I can't remember the study or anything but they'd sent out a survey to a load of different vets and asked what was the most important quality they had to like list they had to like rank a list of qualities that they want in work experience and EMS students. And the number one was actually enthusiasm. And then I think the second one was like being polite. So they're not looking for clinical knowledge. They're not looking, I mean, they will be looking for clinical knowledge when you get a bit further in the vet course. Um, But especially, you know, as a work experience student, and even when you're out on EMS, like actually in vet school, they're not expecting you to act like qualified vets, but they expect you to have those sort of qualities that a qualified vet would have, you know, that enthusiasm, the politeness, and the more you give that, the more they'll be giving it back to you. So I think that's really key, you know, it doesn't matter what work experience you're on, whether you're in a vet practice, whether you're in a referral hospital, whether you're just out on a farm doing some lambing, just get as stuck in as you can, be as polite as you can, enthusiastic, ask questions, don't be worried about asking what might seem like a silly question and you'll get so much out of it. And like Matthew said, build up really good rapport with people and sort of just start building a really good name for yourself, which is a really good thing to do. So Matthew, I understand that you have quite a keen interest in the link of cataracts and diabetes within ophthalmology. So can you tell us a little bit about that, like how they're related and what they both are? Yeah, absolutely. So firstly, uh, the reason that I'm interested in the link between diabetes and in cataracts especially is because firstly, I think every one of our applying students will be able to appreciate that obesity is one of the main issues in companion animal medicine at the moment. And the fact it's so frustrating because it's preventable. And I wanted to show that, or not show, but just to hit home the message that it, it doesn't end with obesity. You know, it's, it, there's so many other complications associated with obesity, such as cataracts, for example, which I'll go on to explain in a moment. 
that can really compromise the quality of life of our companion animals. And so cataracts essentially describes the development of opacities or sort of dark spots in the lens of the eye. And that ultimately means that your vision will become very cloudy, very blurry. And the more that the cataract develops, the more that those sort of opacities or those dark spots or those sort of fuzzy spots become larger, the, the vision will get worse and worse and worse. And diabetes also describes the raised uh, blood glucose level and uh, for, a, you know, for a chronic or a prolonged period. And there are two types of diabetes. Uh, type one, which is largely unpreventable, is um, when you have some sort of usually an autoimmune, autoimmune condition, which disrupts the function of the cells in the pancreas that produce insulin, therefore meaning that you can't produce enough insulin to get your blood glucose level down when you need to, which means that your blood glucose level is high. And then type two diabetes is often linked with obesity, which is when your uh, beta cells in the pancreas, their function is absolutely fine, but and they can produce enough insulin. But because you've got such a high level of sugar coming in to your body through diet and through a lack of exercise, the, the responsiveness of your cells to that insulin produced isn't, isn't very good. And so you need to produce a lot more insulin to get the same concentration of glucose down as you would without a problem. And so how, how that links with, with um, sorry, how diabetes links with cataracts is through the fact that when we have diabetes, we need to appreciate the fact that not only is your blood glucose level really high, but your glucose level is really high in pretty much all fluids in the body. And so that, you know, the, the aqueous humor, which is a type of fluid in the front of your eye, that, that's no different. Because you've got such a high glucose concentration in the sort of the fluids within your eye, there's nowhere for that glucose to go. And so that glucose that's in the eye will essentially get converted into a substance called sorbitol. And now sorbitol is much more of a thicker, more viscous, sort of a gel-like substance. And that substance will coat the, the lens in the eye. And that would therefore mean that your vision will become blurry. And then the fact that more and more of that substance called sorbitol will accumulate in the eye and will accumulate in the lens means that the uh, cataracts will sort, sort of start to get worse and worse and worse as more sorbitol is produced. Because glucose can also leave the eye but when it's converted into sorbitol in the eye, which is a storage mechanism for that glucose, the sorbitol then can't leave the eye. And so then that, that is where the, the problems come. And that's when uh, cases such as cataracts and vision impairment start to develop. So for our listeners, don't worry if that was a lot. I am also <laughs> learning this for the first time. So I'm sure you've heard of diabetes in people. This is obviously just diabetes in pets. And then we're talking about sort of like vision and don't get overwhelmed by all the terms just take it chunk by chunk but this is really interesting because I had never really thought about sort of how conditions relate to each other like often we go very like body system by body system and you kind of think oh the liver has problems oh problems in the liver like oh I don't think about the rest of the body that that affects whereas it's really interesting hearing about sort of obesity and then you obviously think oh they might have trouble moving and things like that but then you you realize that like everything is connected. So many more problems can come from this like original issue. And as, as you said, it's so frustrating considering it is preventable. And if you've spent any time in a clinic, you'll, you'll know how often overweight animals come in and you'll have probably heard the vet have that sort of awkward chat where they go, Oh, they, they could be, they could lose a bit more weight or, you know, oh, they are a bit overweight and the owner sort of shrugs it off. Um, 
and it is a tricky thing because a lot of the time it's sort of out of love for our pets but there is this definite like rising obesity problem especially in the UK I think and sort of very very relevant topic now and I just wanted to touch on that so how can we prevent this is it purely just stopping the obesity or is there anything else we can do no so it's interesting and so I think the main problem with especially cataracts as a result of diabetes which in the case of type 2 is often a case of obesity and you know a, a, a poor lifestyle and that sort of thing the actual cataracts to my knowledge I don't think that is preventable I think once those sort of dark spots in the lens of the eye start to develop they're there they're there for a long time however that's why in veterinary medicine we say that prevention is so much better than treating and so if we can start early by preventing the obesity in the first place and then pre preventing you know problems like are caused by the obesity such as diabetes for example we'll be able to prevent the development of cataracts and therefore the animal's vision will be will be sort of saved and I'd like to add to that that although the sort of surgery that you use to treat cataracts where you ultimately sort of back out the bad lens from the animal's eye and replace it with a little sort of plastic artificial lens and put that into the eye as a replacement. Although that's really, really cool to watch, it's um, often very, very expensive. And I think that most sort of insurance companies won't want to cover that sort of procedure, which therefore would, you know, really compromise the animal's welfare if they then have to, you know, live on with a, a permanent lack of vision. Yeah, it's a really interesting topic. And I think it just goes to show how important it is as vets that, you know, when an animal comes in, let's say an animal comes in and they're just here for an annual vaccination and that's all they've come in for. You know, you could go with the approach of, oh, you know, they've come in for the vaccination. I'll vaccinate it. The owner will be happy. I've done my job and send them on their way. But then, you know, when you get pets in that are obese, and, you know, they've come in for their vaccination, the, the appointment slot might have only been five or 10 minutes. You've not got very long to sort of counteract this problem. And you've also then sort of risking, like upsetting the client, because if you're expecting to take your pet and just have it vaccinated, and all of a sudden you're being told that, you know, your pet's obese, and all of the problems that are associated with that, you know, it's not just diabetes and cataracts. It's also then, as Verity mentioned before, they might not be able to get around very well. They might have um, heart problems. They might have respiratory problems. There's all sorts of things that can go wrong. And then I'm sure there's like hundreds of other things that we don't know about. Um, you know, Verity and I didn't know about diabetes and cataracts before. So, you know, that's that's one area that probably isn't as well known by the sort of general public. Um, you know, but as a vet, it's your responsibility to do the best that you can for this patient. And by, you know, not recognising this problem, you risk these things developing. So it's it's really difficult um, to sort of know where the balance is between educating owners on these problems, but not not upsetting anybody and, you know, having the time to do it and things like that. It's, it's a very tricky balance and I think it's something that definitely comes you know with just time in practice and things like that um, and also it comes back to rapport as well if you've got a really good rapport with your clients um, and if the way that you communicate with them is you know in it, it's coming across that you are just trying to educate them and help them as opposed to criticizing them for the fact that they've let their pet get this obese and things like that they're all things that can help you to sort of have the best outcome in cases like this but it's definitely difficult so Matthew you mentioned that 
treatment for this is really quite difficult and prevention is the most important thing. However, if it's sort of too late, um, let's say we have a dog that has quite bad cataracts and the owners either can't afford or, you know, for whatever reason, don't want to go ahead with this very fancy surgery of, you know, replacing the lens. What do you think is the sort of best place to go from there? I mean, obviously it will depend on a case by case basis, but can they have a sort of good enough quality of life to to keep living? Or do you think euthanasia is the best way to go? Or what do you sort of do in that situation? Well, as as the vet in this situation, it's really important to make sure that the client understands the potential implications to the animal's welfare, but also the various treatment options. And it's important that the vet, you know, if, if asked, the vet can give the client, you know, his his advice. But it's it's important that the client knows knows all of the all of the options open to them. And in terms of the animal's welfare, I'm I, I'm not too sure of this, but I believe that the you know dogs especially they don't tend to use their eyes too much, or it's not one of their most important senses. And so for dogs, I believe they rely much more on their sense of smell, their sense of hearing, for example. And so it's it wouldn't be, you know, absolutely detrimental to the animal's welfare. However, it would be something that's important to consider when you're suggesting how you move forward. In these sort of cases, I, I don't think it would result in in um, in euthanasia, or it, it could, like you said, it depends on the case by case basis. But I also remember seeing a lot of times in first opinion practice that there's a procedure called an enucleation, which basically means that you remove the animal's eye completely. And I've seen that done many times where, and then the animal seems to cope well with one eye or in a lot of circumstances with, with no eyes and, and the animal still seems to cope. And from chatting with the vets, I've understood that the animal can, or you know, the dog in this circumstance can adjust really well to, to living with no eyes. But that, that just means that the, the client has to be well aware of what their requirements are to facilitate the, the dog's sort of change of behavior in this circumstance. So the vet would need to advise the client, for example, to make sure that, the, you know, that there's no sudden changes made at home you know, that the dog's bed's always in the same place, dog's food and water always in the same place. And the, the client needs to make sure that they, they, they sort of understand what they're, what they're taking on. And if, if the client isn't sure that they can provide for the animal, then, in, you know, given this, the, the change of requirements for keeping the animal to make, to make sure that its, its welfare is optimised, then potentially euthanasia or other, other you know, sort of avenues might, might be open for discussion. I think we've highlighted some really interesting points there. So firstly about um, exploring all the different options. So yeah, as you said, nothing's clear cut. It's always sort of a case by case basis. And this is something that just for the applying students that I know I had interview questions on where you'd sort of explore different options available. And obviously you're not expected to know all the different surgeries or things because, you know, who does? It's just knowing that it is case by case and each scenario is unique and what works for one patient and owner might not work for another so just consider that when you're sort of discussing scenarios and things like that and being like I would discuss with the owner because obviously you've got different variables such as like pricing insurance like quality of life what the owner is capable of doing um, and I just wanted to sort of highlight that point and I also thought it was interesting we're talking about communicating with the owner making them aware of all the options and once again this is something that like when you're on work experience you can see so be keen watch consultations and 
watch the vet interact with clients and different clients and changing their ways of communication and how they present different options and discussions, especially slightly uncomfortable discussions like obesity or scenarios where the prognosis might not be might be quite poor. So something to sort of just like keep your mind on when you're out in practice and things like that. So Matthew, is there anything else you wanted to sort of talk about? I mean, the, the main thing that I wanted to say is that I know with some of my descriptions of, you know, sort of like the link between diabetes and cataracts, for example, I just want to make sure that I hit home the message that this isn't sort of something that you're expected to know, you know, through your work experience. The whole the whole objective of work experience is to understand that how in cases such as this, for example, where there's quite a sensitive issue being discussed, such as obesity, with a where the vet's discussing this with the clients, it's really, really important that the vet develops his soft skills, such as communication and such as the ability to build and maintain a rapport with the clients to make sure that the client is unreceptive to all of the information that the vet's giving, because that, that information is really important. And the only way that the animal's welfare can be improved in this circumstance is if the vet and the client feel as though they're on the same team and they're working together to rectify obesity, for example, and to therefore prevent all of these other conditions that can happen because of obesity, and which would therefore ultimately improve the animal's quality of life. Yeah, I think that's really good. I think it was, as you said, you don't need to know everything in such detail, but if you find something that you're really passionate about or you see something on work experience that really sort of interests you, then pursue that sort of, as you said, you know, you got further work experience in that area or research something online. Like there's always things to look at. So if you find something that does really interest you, then look it up. Like it's always good to have little niche things you can talk about and show your interest and how keen you are and that you put the effort in to understand extra extra information thank you very much for listening to our episode today i hope we've all learned something new i know i have and thank you very much to our special guest for coming on check out our previous episodes you'll find them all on spotify and apple podcasts thank you very much So we really hope you've enjoyed today's episode. If you found it helpful, then please share it with others that you think will find it useful too. Again, make sure to subscribe to both our podcast and YouTube channel with the same name, So You Want To Be A Vet, to be notified when our next episode is released. Also, don't forget to leave us a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts if you enjoyed. Follow us on Instagram at So You Want To Be A Vet for exclusive quizzes, behind the scenes and updates on all things So You Want To Be A Vet and Vet Mentor. Remember to follow at VetMentor2 to learn more about the opportunities such as our interview skills workshops and our amazing summer school that will help you further your application to that school. If you have any questions or thoughts, then please comment them below the Instagram post for this episode. And if you want to hear us discuss something, then please let us know. You can find our email address in the description. Thanks for listening. Take care.